We're going to be reading Psalm 13. So we're reading from the Psalms. We're reading Psalm 13, the entire thing. Don't worry, it's not Psalm 119. All right, I'll go ahead and read. This is uh, uh, listed as being one of the Psalms of David, a Psalm of David. O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. All right, we're going to go ahead and pray. They're almost done. Good morning, Lord. We thank you for a beautiful day. It, it's, uh, it's gorgeous outside. We thank you for um, this place that we can come to to worship you. We thank you for this community as we gather together. We thank you for those who have already shared gifts this morning in the, in the playing of the piano and the organ and, and, and the singing, the, the voices joined together, the reading of, of liturgy together as we affirm our faith, a time of prayer where we as a community had the opportunity to share, to share our joys and our concerns. We thank you for allowing us to be part of that community like this. community where we acknowledge that, that we don't all think alike, we don't all act alike, we don't all share the same desires, but we all do love you. And because of that, we're committed to, to striving to love one another well. but for us to continue. Continue to strive to love well. We need you. We need your guidance and your spirit. Your encouragement and your strength. And so part of that for us is, is together turning towards these scriptures, these sacred texts, to hear the words of the saints that have gone before us, who have, who have spent time reflecting on what does it mean to call you God and, and 
and to call ourselves your people. So that we, when we struggle with these same questions, can, can find inspiration, encouragement, be challenged to become the people that you've called and created us to be. So this morning, as we turn to your scriptures, we pray that you might open our ears, that we might hear, so that we might be transformed. Hide me behind your cross. Let us experience your grace and your mercy, your love, your joy, your justice, and your righteousness. For all these things, in your most holy and precious name, amen. So we, um, we began a series, it's just a three-week series, we began it last week, uh, creatively titled God. And we, uh, we're, looking at, we're looking at three, I don't know if I want to, how do I want to word this? Uh, three ways that we experience God, I think that's probably the best way. Um, the, so last week we talked about this idea that God is with us. And I thought about that this week more, even though I, you know, moved on. I continue to think about stuff. And, and I began to think about this, that the thought of God being with us, for some of us, it may create a, um, a feeling of um, peace, Right? Uh, for some of us, it actually may, may um, create a feeling of anxiety, thinking, oh, God is with me. Um, right? I, I, think that, I think that the different reactions that we're going to have are dependent upon our idea of, of who or what God is. Does that make sense? So, so for example, if I, if I picture God as a, a demanding, judging, punishing taskmaster, then I'm going to be very anxious when I think about God being with me, right? Because basically my, my thought process then becomes, don't screw up. Because if you screw up, he's going to get you, right? It's like, remember that game Whack-A-Mole? <laughs> you, you remember that game, right? And you stand there with the little rubber, you stand there with the mallet, and then when the mole would pop its head up, you'd have to hit it. And then you'd get tickets, and now we're back at Chuck E. Cheese. So <laughs> anyway, so if, you're, if your idea of God is whack-a-mole, then the, the idea of God being with you is causing anxiety. Um, but if we view God as loving, caring, patient, kind, then we may actually find ourselves at peace with the thought of God being with us. Um, it's like, I remember the moment when uh, Denise's dad passed away. And at the time, Denise's dad and I were the only two men in the family. And I was young. I still am, but let's be honest. Um, that's right. I'm looking at you, David Devine. Anyway, um, 
But I remember, like, when he passed away, all of a sudden I was overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility for everybody. And it dawned on me that the way I understood Denise's dad as being caring, loving, supportive, I relied on that. And as long as I knew that he was with us, there was comfort for me. Right? Uh, the moment he was gone, I lost that. And so, if I think about God in terms of that way, then there's, there's a joy, a comfort that comes with thinking about God with me. And so the question, actually, this week is this. So God, God with us was last week. This week is God for us. Because the, it, we have to ask ourselves this question, like, what do you believe? When you think about God, what do you believe? Do you, believe that God is, do you actually believe that God is for you? Do you believe that God's desire is that you flourish? that you thrive, that you shine in this world? Do you believe that God wants you to be everything you could possibly be as you become more and more and more your true self? Do you believe God loves you because of you? Or do you believe that God loves you in spite of you? Even that is, is shaped by our understanding of who God is. Here's the thing, and I've been thinking about this too, and it's not in my notes, but I've been thinking. If I say that God is all loving, then is it even possible for God to love me simply in spite of myself? Or is it that God just actually loves me hard stop? Now here, but we have to be careful, I think, a little bit too. And I thought about this, and I actually jotted this one down this morning. Because, yes, I'm talking about God being for us. But what I want to make sure is that when I say for us, I don't simply mean those of us in this room. And I don't simply mean those of us who have gathered up in sanctuaries on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night or whatever. But I'm talking about, like, God for us in terms of John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. The whole world. God didn't come to judge the world, but so that the world could be saved. What do we believe about God? In this psalm, David cries out. And his crying out, I believe, reveals what he believes about God. And three times, right? Oh Lord, how long? Will you forget me? How long will you look the other way? How, actually it's four times, wow. How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? How long? It seems to indicate that David believes there's going to be an end to the suffering. He just wants to know when. There's going to be an end to the suffering. The question is when. Not, is it going to end? How long? 
a completely different question, right? Now, I, I, I did a little search, and I looked for the phrase, how long, in scriptures this week. How long? Like, how, 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 how often is how long used in the Bible? Um, so the phrase is used 67 times between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 67 times. Now, uh, to be sure, sometimes that it's used, it's simply used uh, in questions about measurement. Like, for example, how long should the ark be? How long uh, is the tab, like when we're building parts for the tabernacle, how long is that going to be? When we're building parts for the temple, how, how long? So there's just units of measurement, right? But 14 times, according to my count, um, it's asked by one of God's people as a supplication to relieve some form of suffering. People believe in the Bible, what we see is that people believe that God can relieve suffering and bring about justice. If you didn't believe that God could relieve suffering and bring about justice, you wouldn't ask God to relieve suffering and bring about justice. Right? You don't ask somebody to do something for you unless you actually believe they can do it. And so the very fact that they're crying out is a statement about their belief. It's also a statement about the belief that maybe God's willing to do it. Because you don't ask somebody to do something if you don't think they're actually willing to do it. But here's the other thing, too. For us to cry out for help, we have to first realize that we actually need help. And then another question. What do we need help for? When we do cry out for God, what are we actually asking God for? Okay, rhetorical questions, just to self-reflect for a moment. How many people this week prayed to God crying out for something? Maybe, maybe, okay. Was it something for you? Was it something for somebody else? Those of us that cried out to God for something this week, was it for a transformation of you? Did anybody cry out this week, Dear God, please help me grow in grace. Dear God, help me be more compassionate. Or was it more like my prayers usually are, Lord, please change that person so I don't have to be any more compassionate. <laughs> so the 19 times the question is asked by God, how long? It's either by God or one of God's representatives, somebody asking this question on behalf of God, maybe a prophet, Right? God or a prophet is saying, how long? How long are they going to be unfaithful? How long are they going to be disobedient? How long, Jesus asked, am I going to have to put up with this generation? But here again, it's not will they get it. 
It's a question of when will they get it. God believes this about us. He, he doesn't believe that we're always going to be disobedient. He just wants to know when we're going to stop being disobedient. That's what God believes about you. Right? It's, it's not that God believes that you're always going to be unfaithful. God just wants to know how long we're going to be unfaithful. God anticipates a change in humankind. Did you ever think about that? God sometimes, probably more often than not, has more hope for humankind than I do. God believes that people can and will do better. In fact, he has so much faith in you that God chooses to work in this world through you. Read the Bible. Whenever God is about to act, what does he do? He finds the right person to do it. And he asks them to do it. And you only ask people to do things if you know that they're going to be willing to do it and that they can actually make a difference. So God asking people to do things, God not only believes in you, but he knows that we actually can make a difference in this world. And he believes that we will. And at least six times this phrase suggests God's patience. I was thinking about God's patience this week. And I was reminded about my grandfather. And I remember my grandfather telling me one time, Jeff, don't ever pray for the return of Jesus. Thank God that Jesus hasn't returned. Because it's a sign of God's patience. Because God believes that just one more day, just one more day, and more people will come. Every day that we get to take breaths is another day to do God's goodwill. It's another day for other people to come to love God, to come into relationship with God. One more day. And as Christians, we should want one more day. He told me, it's my grandfather, if you don't like it, you can take it up with him, but he's passed. <laughs> he told me to pray for the return of Jesus is actually a selfish prayer. Because it means we're happy with us and that's good enough. And I think as I read this, these passages of Scripture and I reflect on the question, how long? And I think about the patience of God and I think about the belief that God has in us that eventually, not when, or not if, but when we're going to change. I believe what, what my grandfather and what the Scriptures have been teaching and, and leading us towards is this idea that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. Now, I didn't come up with that phrase. Theodore Parker, who is an abolitionist, is the first one that they actually give credit to for that phrase. And this is what he wrote. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. In other words, you can't see the full arc. 
of the universe. I, I can't. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. What God believes is not if, but when. Martin Luther King Jr., who uh, we celebrate this weekend and and tomorrow, um, civil rights leader, took that same sentiment and he wrote this, how long, not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Another way I think to think about that is the building of the kingdom of God. And, and if, that's where, if that's where God is leading us, if that is what God is inviting us to, if that is, if that is the desire of God, then it seems to me every time I go against it, I'm actually fighting against God. So I can choose to either participate or fight against moving towards justice. Here's the other thing. I think there's knowledge about something, and then there's knowledge that comes from your experience of that something. Right? So it's one thing for us to mentally think, okay, God is with us. Um, another, men- mentally uh, agree to the idea that God is for you. But it's a whole other thing to go beyond simply a, a mental understanding of it and to an experiential understanding of it. And I think that by looking at David, by looking at uh, Theodore Parker, by looking at Martin Luther King Jr., we begin to see that, that, that these are people who have experienced it. Think about, think about it this way, right? It's one thing to stand there in a lab coat with a clipboard recording data about lips. It's a whole other thing to be kissed. So in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he also uses the phrase, how long? But it's not a question. Rather, it's a statement indicating the unmeasurable love of Christ. The incarnate one says this. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of time and power that comes from God. Did you see what he did there? He goes, may you understand it. How do you understand it? May you experience it. At some point, our beliefs about God have to go beyond doctrine and dogma, and they have to move to living, breathing, embodied experiences of God's love and grace. 
I used the word incarnate a moment ago to describe Jesus, right? And, and what we're taught is that it's the word becomes flesh. I think if we don't move, go beyond doctrine and dogma to a living, breathing, embodied experience of God's love and grace, if we don't, we run the risk of taking the incarnation and turning it back into words. What God took and made flesh, are we really wanting to take flesh and simply turn into words? God with us. God for us. These are action things that we're talking about. Activities of God. What's more important? What we know about God or what we're doing with God? What we know about God, what we believe about God is only important insofar as what it makes us do. Do I need to say that one again? Let me say it one more time. What we know about God, what we believe about God, is only as important insofar as what it makes us do. One last thought. A demanding, judging, and punishing God may cause us to behave differently. but it won't cause us to be different. Amen.